You're listening to the podcast of Williamsburg Christian Church, a community of faith joining God's pursuit of restoring lives. We hope you enjoy this week's podcast. One of the things that we love about Jesus is that he was a friend of what we call sinners or what the Bible would call sinners. And we love that about him so much so that you can Google it and there's a song or two or three or 10 or 15 about it. Um, And the thing about that is what we love about Jesus is exactly what Jesus's day and Jesus's day, the religious people would have found offensive. It was what we love about Jesus is exactly what the people of Jesus's day found to be scandalous. See, the truth of, of, of the notion of sinners is that when the Bible talks about sinners, it doesn't mean people with behavioral sin problems like we mean. When the Bible uses the word sinner, it was a label. It's an actual term. It's a label that was given to people in Jewish times and in Palestine, in ancient Near Eastern culture, in the Jewish world. It was a label that was given to people who broke the law of Moses. They were lawbreakers. That's what sinner meant. It didn't mean a person who does bad things like it does today. In Jesus' day, in your Bibles, for 2,000 years, it was always understood that a person who was a sinner was a person who was labeled a sinner because they broke the law of Moses and they were excommunicated from the life of religion. In modern terms, they would have been excommunicated from the church, which is why there's a category, a class of sinner in the scriptures. So when it says that Jesus is hanging out with sinners, it literally means to Jewish culture that he's hanging out with a bunch of lawbreakers, people who are kicked out of the church, the religious establishment. But not just that, it also said that he was a friend of tax collectors too. Now, what makes that scandalous in Jesus's day? What's a tax collector in Jesus's day? A traitor. Why, are the, why is a tax collector a traitor in Jesus' day? Because they work for Rome. They're Jewish men who work for Rome. So a guy like, name a tax collector that we know. Matthew. So a guy like Matthew works for the Roman government as a Jewish-born citizen. And he takes this job with Rome, and he goes around and knocks on the doors of his countrymen, and he asks them, he demands with Roman guards behind them that they pay their taxes. But what Matthew can do is he also can get money for himself too. Caesar told Matthew that if he would work for him as a fellow Jewishman, he could take a little off the top. So Matthew would come in and ask for more than was required. Matthew was a thief. He was, tax collectors were thieves. They were treasonous thieves. It's been there for 2,000 years in Jewish times. So tax collectors and sinners, treasonous, thieving, dishonest men and lawbreakers, and there's Jesus. But not just that, see. Because there was a Roman occupation There was another group of radicals who arose from the sands of Palestine called Zealots. Zealots were a political radical group that sought to terrorize the occupancy of Rome. They were the ones who would climb on the horses with their swords and try to stir trouble and create a little terror in the hopes that Rome would get out of town. Zealots particularly hated anyone 
who would, in, who would be in collusion with Rome. Zealots particularly hated tax collectors. And the irony of this whole narrative is that Jesus calls and invites Matthew, a tax collector, to follow him, and in the same breath invites a zealot named Simon to follow him too. It's as if Jesus is saying, all of your political ideology and your little party political commitments, place them in submission to me. Because that's not what life is really about. Simon, who would have killed Matthew any day of the week and twice on Sabbath, had to now figure out how to love Matthew and vice versa. And not only that, don't forget about the blue-collar folks that Jesus called to follow him too, like Peter, James, and John, who I'm sure when Jesus said, follow me, they were like fishermen who couldn't make rabbi schools, so they were like, this is awesome, and they're following Jesus, and then Jesus invites a tax collector to follow him. They're like, this probably isn't so awesome. And then he invites Simon the Zealot somewhere along the line, and I'm sure they're thinking, this isn't awesome at all. But then the text tells us that after Jesus invites Matthew to follow him, Matthew, the good tax collector, does what any tax collector would do. To introduce people to Jesus, he throws a party. And Matthew invites all the people that he knows, which are going to be a bunch of tax collectors, and say it with me, sinners. So the text says that while Jesus was reclining at the table in Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners, I want you to look at that phrase, to be there three times, were also guests with Jesus and his disciples because there were many who were following him. When the scribes of the Pharisees, scribes would have been attorneys, when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? These are labels. These are categories. These are class systems. These are not just merely descriptions. When Jesus heard this, he told them, those who are well don't need a doctor. The sick do. I didn't come to call the righteous but sinners. See, here's what I learned from the text. I learned from the text what I bet Peter, James, and John learned. That when you follow Jesus, like if you take Jesus seriously and you follow him, you're going to end up in the house of a tax collector and sinner. When you follow Jesus, you end up going to the dark places. You end up being thrust in the presence of the people that you would rather judge. But that's what it means to follow Jesus, because that's where Jesus goes. That's why he's called a friend of sinners. That's why he was called crazy by his family. That's why he was said he was filled with a demon. That's why he was even told that he was filled with Beelzebub. Because Jesus went to the people that were on the margins. And when we read the Gospels, we know that the Gospel was born on the margins. But the church's life is also born on the margins, because it's on the margins that Jesus is always found. The people that the church says aren't welcome, Jesus says, but they're welcome into the life of God. And if we're going to follow Jesus, we've got to follow Jesus into those places. And I bet Peter, James, and John were sitting there at that party thinking, this is awkward. I bet Peter, James, and John were wondering what their family and the other religious friends were going to think about them. Which is maybe why they needed to know too, like we talked about last week, that because of Christ they had nothing to prove. They just need to follow Jesus and trust him with the consequences. See, the church is called to enter the darkness. We always have been. So much so that the Apostle Paul, who knew darkness better than anybody, as a converted terrorist, once wrote to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians 4 this. 
He said, for we're not, we're not proclaiming ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your slaves because of Jesus. For God who said, let, read this with me, let light shine out of darkness. Just listen to that phrase, let light shine out of darkness. Has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. Now we have this treasure in jars of clay so that this extraordinary power may be from God and not from us. We are pressured in every way, but not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. We are persecuted, but not abandoned. We are struck down, but not destroyed. We always carry the death of Jesus in our body so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. In other words, this is hard, y'all. Like that would be the Southern translation of the Greek. Like listen to the text. It says, let light shine out of darkness. What does that phrase assume? That, that you start in the darkness. See, the light doesn't shine over and above the darkness. The light doesn't shine around the darkness. The light doesn't shine through the darkness. The church can't stand on the margins looking out to the darkness. The church can't stand on the tower looking down at the darkness. The, look can't, the church can't run from the darkness. No, no, no. No, the light has to shine out of it. We got we to charge the darkness. We got to run into the darkness because that's where Jesus says. And when we run into the darkness, what does light always do to darkness? It scatters it. The problem is the church thinks somehow the darkness has more power than the light, but it's not so. Which is why then Jesus even, this is why, which is why Paul says, look, we're just, we're just clay jars. With all of our cracks, we're not that special. It'd be easy to think that Francis is some hero of the faith, and to me he is. Make no mistake, he's a hero to me. But even Francis is a jar of clay. We're just jar clays, jars of clay. But, but, but with all the cracks, the light of Christ shines out and scatters the darkness, but only if we were run to the darkness instead of running from it and judging it all the time. Like There's nothing about the ministry of Jesus that makes any sense of that at all. We've got to be a church that charges the darkness. And when we are, we let the light shine from out of the darkness to give light to all who need to desperately see that it's the love of God that can make their way straight. It's the kingdom of God and the ethics of the kingdom that can bring shalom and peace and wholeness to society. So Jesus runs to the lepers, but then we have to as well. We can't run from them. Jesus runs to the foreigners. We have to as well. We can't run from them. Jesus runs to the sick. We have to run to them as well. We cannot run from them. If we follow Jesus, it has to look like something, and it always looks like running into the darkness. And frankly, church, what makes Christianity different from every other world religion is we're supposed to be the ones who charge the suffering, who charge the darkness. We will go to the gates of hell with a squirt gun if we must. Because it's the light of Christ, so that the extraordinary power that is within us, we didn't earn it, it's in us, the Spirit, may come out from us. Look at the last line. So that grace extended through more and more people may cause thanksgiving to increase to God's glory. 
See, this is what Francis did years ago, 10 years ago, when he was walking the roads of Eldoret in the slums and he saw an orphan child being beaten by a guardian. Francis could have gone on in his way. He had his own things to do. He has his own problems. When Francis grew up going to school, he didn't own a pair of shoes until he was 14. He walked 13 miles one way to school every day of his life. So 10 years ago, I'm sure he had his own problems and his own concerns. And he could have seen this child being beaten, this orphan being beaten by a guardian, and he could have said, oh, that is just too bad. May God bless that child. Or maybe even here's some money. But he didn't do that. He charged the darkness. And he entered into that darkness of the child's life, and he began to work with that guardian and work with that child. And then that one child turned to two children, turned to many children, and the light that shone out of Francis's broken jar of clay connected with a light that was shining out of Amarillo, Texas through Christian Relief Fund and came together and created this extraordinary sense of light to where now today there are 1,800 orphans, AIDS orphans under Francis's care. They've planted 102 churches. They've drilled 144 wells for clean water. They've changed 15 tribes' entire lives with farming, farming equipment and farming skills and farming tools and livestock. 5,000 goats in one community alone. Ian heard Francis say that. Ian said, that's a lot of goats. With milk and chicken and eggs and food, teaching them how to sustain life together. He started how many primary schools? Four primary schools. How many high schools? One high school and one college. The four high primary schools and the one high school are the top performing schools in Kenya, and the one high school is the top performing school in Kenya. Five CRF centers in Kenya. All because a man of God 10 years ago decided to enter into the darkness and then God knew that on the other side of the map, there was a group of people called Christian Relief Fund who were praying about how to enter into the darkness. And God brought the lights together. And that story in and of itself is providential. And just two years ago, God invited us to enter into the darkness in the safest way possible, mind you. When we were presented the opportunity to build the Taraqua Children's Village, when we chose to forego building our own building here, which we clearly need, because we knew that eight hours of comfort for us was ridiculous compared to 24-hour-a-day, seven-day-a-week comfort for children. It was a choice we made. Should I say it was a choice the Spirit made that we just submitted to? And now 150 orphans have a home who were abused and burned and beaten. Many of these orphans now, since they were saved from the streets, have been placed with extended families, so they're out of the orphanage, which is really what we want. We want them to be with their families. But they couldn't be for a while. This church takes care of a total of about 300 orphans. Our little church in this little bitty plot of field called Williamsburg, Virginia, and had the grace of God to build this children's home. <laughs>